This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Superstition of Divorce by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 7 The Tragedies of Marriage. There is one view very common among the liberal-minded which is exceedingly fatiguing to the clear-headed it is symbolized in the sort of man who says these ruthless bigots will refuse to bury me in consecrated ground because i have always refused to be baptized a clear-headed person can easily conceive his point of view in so far as he happens to think that baptism does not matter but the clear-headed will be completely puzzled when they ask themselves why if he thinks that baptism does not matter, he should think that burial does matter. If it is in no way imprudent for a man to keep himself from consecrated font, how can it be inhuman for other people to keep him from a consecrated field? It is surely much nearer to mere superstition to attach importance to what is done to a dead body than to a live baby. I can understand a man thinking both superstitious or both sacred, but I cannot see why he should grumble that other people do not give him as sanctity what he regards as superstitions. He is merely complaining of being treated as what he himself declares to be. It is as if a man were to say, My persecutors still refuse to make me king, out of mere malice, because I am a strict republican. Or as if he said, These heartless brutes are so prejudiced against the teetotaler they won't even give him a glass of brandy. The fashion of divorce would not be a modern fashion if it were not full of this touching fallacy. A great deal might be summed up as a most illogical and fanatical appetite for getting married in churches. It is as if a man should practice polygamy out of sheer greed for wedding cake, or it is as if he provided his household with new shoes entirely by having them thrown after the wedding carriage when he went off with a new wife. There are other ways of procuring cake or procuring shoes, and there are other ways of setting up a human establishment. What is unreasonable is the request which the modern man really makes of the religious institutions of his fathers. The modern man wants to buy one shoe without the other, to obtain one half of a supernatural revelation without the other. The modern man wants to eat his wedding cake, and have it too. I am not basing this book on the religious argument, and therefore I will not pause to inquire why the old Catholic institutions of Christianity seem to be especially made the objects of these unreasonable complaints. As a matter of fact, nobody does propose that some ferocious anti-Semite, like M. Dumont, should be buried as a Jew with all the rites of the synagogue. But the broad-minded were furious because Tolstoy, who had denounced Russian orthodoxy quite as ferociously, was not buried as an orthodox with all the rites of the Russian church. Nobody does insist that a man who wishes to have fifty wives when Muhammad allowed him five must have his fifty with the full approval of Muhammad's religion. But the broad-minded are extremely bitter because a Christian who wishes to have several wives when his own promise bound him to one is not allowed to violate his vow at the same altar at which he made it. Nobody does insist on Baptists totally immersing people 
who totally denied the advantage of being totally immersed. Nobody ever did expect Mormons to receive the open mockers of the Book of Mormon, nor Christian scientists to let their churches be used for exposing Mrs. Eddy as an old fraud. It is only of the forms of Christianity making the Catholic claim that such inconsistent claims are made. And even the inconsistency is, as I fancy, a tribute to an acceptance of the Catholic idea in the Catholic fashion. It may be that men have an obscure sense that nobody need belong to the Mormon religion, and every one does ultimately belong to the Church. And though he may have made a few dozen Mormon marriages in a wandering and entertaining life, he will really have nowhere to go if he does not somehow find his way back to the churchyard. But all this concerns the general theological question, and not the matter involved here, which is merely historical and social. The point here is that it is at least superficially inconsistent to ask institutions for a formal approval which they can only give by inconsistency. I have put first the question of what is marriage, and we are now in a position to ask more clearly what is divorce. It is not merely the negation or neglect of marriage, for anyone can always neglect marriage. It is not the dissolution of the legal obligation of marriage, or even the legal obligation of monogamy, for the simple reason that no such obligation exists. Any man in modern London may have a hundred wives if he does not call them wives, or rather, if he does not go through certain more or less mystical ceremonies in order to assert that they are wives. He might create a certain social coolness round his household, a certain fading of his general popularity, but that is not created by law and could not be prevented by law. As the late Lord Salisbury very sensibly observed about boycotting in Ireland, how can you make a law to prevent people going out of a room when somebody they don't like comes into it? We cannot be forcibly introduced to a polygamist by a policeman. It would not be an assertion of social liberty, but a denial of social liberty, if we found ourselves practically obliged to associate with all the profligates in society. But divorce is not in this sense mere anarchy. On the contrary, divorce is in this sense respectability, and even a rigid excess of respectability. Divorce in this sense might indeed be not unfairly called snobbery. The definition of divorce which concerns us here is that it is the attempt to give respectability and not liberty. It is the attempt to give a certain social status and not a legal status. It is indeed supposed that this can be done by the alteration of certain legal forms, and this will be more or less true according to the extent to which law, as such overawed public opinion, or was valued as a true expression of public opinion. If a man divorced in the large-minded fashion of Henry VIII, pleaded his legal title among the peasantry of Ireland, for instance, I think he would find a difference still existing between respectability and religion. But the peculiar point here is that many are claiming the sanction of religion as well as of respectability. They would attach to their very natural and sometimes very pardonable experiments a certain atmosphere and even glamour which has undoubtedly belonged to the status of marriage in historic Christendom. 
but before they make this attempt it would be well to ask why such a dignity ever appeared or in what it consisted and i fancy we shall find ourselves confronted with the very simple truth that the dignity arose wholly and entirely out of the fidelity and that the glamour merely came from the vow people were regarded as having a certain dignity because they were dedicated in a certain way as bound to certain duties and if it be preferred to certain discomforts it may be irrational to endure these discomforts it may even be irrational to respect them but it is certainly much more irrational to respect them and then artificially transfer the same respect to the absence of them it is as if we were to expect uniforms to be saluted when armies were disbanded and ask people to cheer a soldier's coat when it did not contain a soldier if you think you can abolish war abolish it but do not suppose that when there are no wars to be waged there will still be warriors to be worshipped if it was a good thing that the monasteries were dissolved let us say so and dismiss them but the nobles who dissolved the monasteries did not shave their heads and ask to be regarded as saints solely on account of that ceremony the nobles did not dress up as abbots and ask to be credited with a potential talent for working miracles because of the austerity of their vows of poverty and chastity they got inside the houses but not inside the hoods and still less the halos they at least knew that it is not the habit that makes the monk they were not so superstitious as those moderns who think it is the veil that makes the bride what is respected in short is the fidelity to the ancient flag of the family and a readiness to fight for what i have noted as its unique type of freedom i say readiness to fight for fortunately the fight itself is the exception rather than the rule the soldier is not respected because he is doomed to death but because he is ready for death and even ready for defeat the married man or woman is not doomed to evil sickness or poverty but is respected for taking a certain step for better or worse for richer or poorer in sickness or in health but there is one result of this line of argument which should correct a danger in some arguments on the same side it is very essential that a stricture on divorce which is in fact simply a defense of marriage should be independent of sentimentalism especially in the form called optimism a man justifying a fight for national independence or civic freedom is neither sentimental nor optimistic he explains the sacrifice but he does not explain it away he does not say that bayonet wounds are pinpricks or mere scratches of the thorns of a rose of pleasure he does not say that the whole display of firearms is a festive display of fireworks on the contrary when he praises it most he praises it as pain rather than pleasure he increases the praise with pain it is his whole boast that militarism and even modern science can produce no instrument of torture to tame the soul of a man it is idle in speaking of war to pit the realistic against the romantic in the sense of the heroic for all possible realism can only increase the heroism and therefore in the highest sense increase the romance now i do not compare marriage with war but i do compare marriage with law or liberty or patriotism or popular government 
or any of the human ideals which have often to be defended by war even the wildest of those ideals which seem to escape from all the discipline of peace do not escape from the discipline of war the bolshevist may have aimed at pure peace and liberty but they have been compelled for their own purpose first to raise armies and then to rule armies in a word however beautiful you may think your own visions of beatitude men must suffer to be beautiful and even suffer a considerable interval of being ugly and i have no notion of denying that mankind suffers much from the maintenance of the standard of marriage as it suffers from the necessity of criminal law or the recurrence of crusades and revolutions the only question here is whether marriage is indeed as i maintain an ideal and an institution for making popular freedom i do not need to be told that anything making for popular freedom has to be paid for in vigilance and pain and a whole army of martyrs hence i am far indeed from denying the hard cases which exist here as in all matters involving the idea of honour for indeed i could not deny them without denying the whole parallel of militant morality on which my argument rests but this being first understood it will be well to discuss in a little more detail what are described as the tragedies of marriage and the first thing to note about the most tragic of them is that they are not tragedies of marriage at all they are tragedies of sex and might easily occur in a highly modern romance in which marriage was not mentioned at all it is generally summarized by saying that the tragic element is the absence of love but it is often forgotten that another tragic element is often the presence of love the doctors of divorce with an air of the frank and friendly realism of men of the world are always recommending and rejoicing in a sensible separation by mutual consent but if we are really to dismiss our dreams of dignity and honour if we are really to fall back on the frank realism of our experience as men of the world then the very first thing that our experience will tell us is that it very seldom is a separation by mutual consent that is that the consent very seldom is sincerely and spontaneously mutual by far the commonest problem in such cases is that in which one party wishes to end the partnership and the other does not and of that emotional situation you can make nothing but a tragedy whichever way you turn it with or without marriage with or without divorce with or without any arrangements that anybody can suggest or imagine it remains a tragedy the only difference is that by the doctrine of marriage it remains both a noble and a fruitful tragedy like that of a man who falls fighting for his country or dies testifying to the truth but the truth is that the innovators have as much sham optimism about divorce as any romantist can have about marriage they regard their story when it ends in the divorce court through as rosy a mist of sentimentalism as anybody ever regarded a story ending with wedding bells such a reformer is quite sure that when once the prince and princess are divorced by the fairy godmother they will live happily ever after i enjoy romance but i like it to be rooted in reality and anyone with a touch of reality knows that nine couples out of ten when they are divorced are left in an exceedingly different state it will be safe to say in most cases that one partner will fail to find happiness in an infatuation and the other will from the first 
except the tragedy. In the realm of reality, and not romance, it is commonly a case of breaking hearts, as well as breaking promises, and even dishonor is not always a remedy for remorse. The next limitation to be laid down in the matter affects certain practical forms of discomforts on a level rather lower than love or hatred. The cases most commonly quoted concern what is called drink and what is called cruelty. They are always talked about as matters of fact, though in practice they are very decidedly matters of opinion. It is not a flippancy, but a fact, that the misfortune of the woman who has married a drunkard may have to be balanced against the misfortune of the man who has married a teetotaler. For the very definition of drunkenness may depend on the dogma of teetotalism. Drunkenness, it has been truly observed, may mean anything from delirium treatments to having a stronger head than the official appointed to conduct the examination. Mr. Bernard Shaw once professed apparently seriously that any man drinking wine or beer at all was incapacitated from managing a motor-car, and still more, therefore, one would suppose, from managing a wife. The scales are weighed here, of course, with all those false weights of snobbishness which are the curse of justice in this country. The working class is forced to conduct almost in public a normal and varying festive habit which the upper class can afford to conduct in private, and a certain section of the middle class that which happens to concern itself most with local politics and social reforms, really has or affects a standard quite abnormal and even alien. They might go to any length of injustice in dealing with the working man or working woman accused of too hearty a taste in beer. To mention but one matter out of a thousand, the middle-class reformers are obviously quite ignorant of the hours at which working people begin to work because they themselves, at eleven o'clock in the morning, have only recently finished breakfast and the full moral digestion of the daily mail, they think a charwoman drinking beer at that hour is one of those arising early in the morning to follow after strong drink. Most of them really do not know that she has already done more than half a day's heavy work and is partaking of a very reasonable luncheon. The whole problem of proletarian drink is entangled in a network of these misunderstandings and there is no doubt whatever that, when judged by these generalizations, the poor will be taken in a net of injustices. And this truth is as certain in the cases of what is called cruelty as of what is called drink. Nine times out of ten the judgment on a navvy for hitting a woman is about as just as a judgment on him for not taking off his hat to a lady. It is a class test. It may be a class superiority but it is not an act of equal justice between classes. It leaves out a thousand things, the provocation, the atmosphere, the harassing restrictions of space, the nagging which Dickens described as the terrors of temper in a cart, the absence of certain taboos of social training, the tradition of greater roughness even in the gestures of affection. To make all marriage or divorce, in the case of such a man, turn upon a blow, is like blasting the whole life of a gentleman because he has slammed the door. Often a poor man cannot slam the door partly because the model villa might fall down, but more because he has nowhere to go. The smoking-room, the billiard-room, and the peacock music-room not being yet attached to his premises. 
I say this in passing to point out that while I do not dream of suggesting that there are only happy marriages, there will quite certainly, as things work nowadays, be a very large number of unhappy and unjust divorces. There will be cases in which the innocent partner will receive the real punishment of the guilty partner, though being in fact and feeling the faithful partner. For instance, it is insisted that a married person must at least find release from the society of a lunatic. But it is also true that the scientific reformers, with their fuss about the feeble-minded, are continually giving larger and looser definitions of lunacy. The process might begin by releasing somebody from a homicidal maniac, and end by dealing in the same way with a rather dull conversationalist. But in fact nobody does deny that a person should be allowed some sort of release from a homicidal maniac. The most extreme school of orthodoxy only maintains that anybody who has had that experience should be content with that release. In other words it says he should be content with that experience of matrimony and not seek another. It was put very wittily, I think, by a Roman Catholic friend of mine, who said he approved of release, so long as it was not spelled with a hyphen. To put it roughly, we are prepared in some cases to listen to the man who complains of having a wife, but we are not prepared to listen at such length to the same man when he comes back and complains that he has not got a wife. Now in practice, at this moment, the great mass of the complaints are precisely of this kind. The reformers insist particularly on the pathos of a man's position when he has obtained a separation without a divorce. Their most tragic figure is that of the man who is already free of all those ills he has had, and is only asking to be allowed to fly to others that he knows not of. I should be the last to deny that, in certain emotional circumstances, his tragedy may be very tragic indeed. But his tragedy is of the emotional kind which can never be entirely eliminated, and which he himself, in all probability, inflicted on the partner he has left. We may call it the price of maintaining an ideal, or the price of making a mistake. But anyhow, it is the point of our whole distinction in the matter. It is here that we draw the line. And I have nowhere denied that it is a line of battle. The battle joins on the debatable ground, not of the man's doubtful past, but of his still more doubtful future. In a word, the divorce controversy is not really a controversy about divorce. It is a controversy about remarriage, or rather about whether it is marriage at all. And with that we can only return to the point of honor which I have compared here to the point of patriotism. Since it is both the smallest and the greatest kind of patriotism, men have died in torments during the last five years for points of patriotism far more dubious and fugitive. Men like the Poles or the Serbians through long periods of their history, may be said rather to have lived in torments. I will never admit that the vital need of the freedom of the family, as I have tried to sketch it here, is not a cause as valuable as the freedom of any frontier. But I do willingly admit that the cause would be a dark and terrible one if it really asked these men to suffer torments. As I have stated it on its most extreme terms, it only asks them to suffer abdignations. And those negative sufferings I do think they may honorably be called upon to bear, for the glory of their own oath, and the great things by which nations live. In relation to their own nation, most normal men will feel that this distinction between release and re-hyphen lease is neither fanciful nor harsh, but very rational and human. 
A patriot may be an exile in another country, but he will not be a patriot of another country. He will be as cheerful as he can in an abnormal position, or he may or may not sing his country's songs in a strange land, but he will not sing the strange songs as his own. And such may fairly be also the attitude of the citizen who has gone into exile from the oldest of earthly cities. End of chapter 7